topic for this panel is, if not the most, hated and important debates of uh, constitutional law. It's certainly one of them. <coughs> Executive power in wartime. President Bush has asserted that he has far-reaching executive powers based on Article II of the Constitution, including war-making powers not restricted by act of Congress and not subject to the oversight of the federal judiciary. The president has, for example, approved surveillance of enemy communications that begin or end within the territorial limits of the United States without first seeking warrants from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court under the act that created that court. In Hamden versus Rumsfeld this summer, the Supreme Court ruled that detainees of the United States military in Guantanamo, Cuba, are entitled to habeas corpus review of their detention. The President and Congress recently responded to that decision by stripping the courts of habeas jurisdiction and providing exclusive review of the military tribunal on enemy combatant status in the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Has the President acted legally? Has Congress exceeded its constitutional powers? What role, if any, should the judiciary have in mediating these disputes? How best should the balance of power between the three branches be struck? For a discussion of these issues, the Federalist Society has assembled a, a distinguished panel of experts. I will introduce each panelist in the order in which he will speak for about 10 minutes before we will then open it up for some discussion among the panel and then uh, for question and answers from, <coughs> from the audience. Uh, to my far left. <laughs> Richard Epstein is the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago, where he has taught since 1972. He has also been the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution since 2000, and at present is the Director of the John M. Olin Program in Law and Economics. He's written no numerous books and articles on a wide range of legal and interdisciplinary subjects. He is a graduate of Columbia College, Oxford University, and the Yale Law School. To his right, Roger Pilon is Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute, where he holds the B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies. He's the founder and director of Cato Center for Constitutional Studies and the publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Uh, Dr. Pilon holds a bachelor's from Columbia University, a master's and uh, Ph.D. from the University of Chicago, and a law degree from the George Washington University School of Law. To my right, Jeff Stone is the Harry Calvin, Jr. Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago, a member of the law faculty since 1973. Mr. Stone served as Dean of the Law School from 1987 to 1994 and Provost of the University from 1994 to 2002. After graduating from the University of Chicago Law School, he served as a law clerk to Judge 
J. Skelly Wright of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and then to Justice William Brennan of the Supreme Court. His most recent book is Perilous Times, Free Speech in Wartime from the Sedition Act of 1798 to the War on Terrorism. John Yu, uh, to his right, our last speaker, is a professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley School of Law, Bolt Hall, where he has taught since 1993. From 2001 to 2003, he served as a deputy assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel of the Department of Justice, where he worked on issues involving foreign affairs, national security, and the separation of powers. Professor Yu received his B.A. summa cum laude in American history from Harvard University and law school. He was an articles editor of the Yale Law Journal. He clerked for Judge Lawrence Silverman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. He joined the Bolt faculty in 1993 and then clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas of the Supreme Court. He is the author of The Powers of War and Peace, Foreign Affairs and the Constitution After 9-11, and the forthcoming War by Other Means, an insider's account of the war on terror. Uh, Please join me in giving a warm welcome to our uh, first speaker, Professor Epstein. Ten minutes is what our time is, right? Well, it's it's a very great honor to be here to speak about the kind of topic which necessarily creates deep divisions even within the ranks of the uh, Federalist Society. Uh, This is not the standard issues that I was used to raise and discuss having to do with the distribution of powers between the national government and the states, um, where my own view was that Congress's power was sharply circumscribed. In this particular situation, looking at the text and looking at the history, it's quite clear that we have very serious tensions and the question is how best to resolve them. As a general matter, let me state the conclusion that in seeing the way in which the text operates, it seems pretty clear to me that the President's claim of extensive powers under Article II of the Constitution are woefully overstated and generally insupportable. If you actually then look at the history, it's quite clear that the history gives the President some greater powers in terms of practice than was otherwise given under the document. So we have here one of these classic difficulties of trying to reconcile a text which seems to be fairly strongly weighted on this issue in favor of Congress with a series of practices in which the executive has done perhaps a bit more than the Constitution in strict terms authorizes. How one resolves that particular tension is, I think, an extremely difficult kind of problem. What I want to do in the five minutes is to spend, ten minutes that's left to me, spend most of my time worrying about the structural and originalist reasons and worrying less about the history of involvement after the uh, signing of the particular document. One of the constant themes of the Federalist Society has always been, perhaps a little bit too slavishly, a belief in originalism, original intent, basic constitutional design and structure. I have no particular objection against this as a methodology so long as we recognize that there is nothing that you can do by way of abstraction that will dispense you from the task of figuring out very closely what a particular document says and how the various parts move together. And in looking at this thing, it is very clear that the general principle of separation of powers and checks and balances 
which animates the entire Constitution, is of enormous relevance in dealing with this particular issue. Uh, the founders of the Constitution, I think, all started with the same position, uh, that if you're going to have a safe which contains power, valuables in it, like the liberty of the people and its security, you don't want to give all the keys of the safe to a single person. That what you want to do is to figure out how you divide the power in ways that are consistent and coherent and create checks on one side for what can be done on the other side. A general endorsement, however, of the principle of separation of powers and checks and balances does not answer the specific question of exactly what division happens to be created in a particular case. In order to answer that particular question, what you have to do is to start and patiently go through the various provisions and to see how they interlock. In dealing with this issue, it seems to me that your basic prior assumption is that since this was the essential foundation principle of the founders, that we should assume that they tried to put together a fairly coherent set of procedures and that we should be suspicious of any kinds of claims which say that, aha, in organizing our constitutional situation, there was a great deal of flexibility in the way in which these powers were to be allocated so that more than one path from peace to war would be feasible under the Constitution. In my own view, that's a recipe for disaster, that when you're trying to figure out how how these doctrines work, you want to stress consistency first and coherence and then worry about flexibility only in the joints, not as your primary mode of analysis. It, in this point, I think the most instructive thing is the sequence of the articles. Article 1 comes before Article 2, which comes before Article 3. And in dealing with this particular question, I think you want to understand the document by following that sequence down. And on the issues of war and peace, it's pretty clear that the powers that are given to Congress are in explicit terms very extensive, and indeed they seem to be constant. And here I disagree with the formulation of the question, whether we're dealing with the role of executive powers over the military operations in time of peace or in time of war. There is absolutely nothing in the Constitution which seems to change the balance of powers between the various branches as a function of whether peace or war happens to be at stake. So looking at the sort of the basic architecture of Article <coughs> 1, the first thing we know, of course, is that Congress has the power to declare war. And it seems to me that the word declaration in this particular sense is meant, in effect, to try to convey the view that we now have a way of switching from a state of peace to a state of war and that it is quintessentially a collective national decision that this be made and not the result of any single person. If you go further down the situation, you also discover uh, that Congress has the power to make uh, rules for the government and regulation of the armed forces, and this, in fact, land and naval forces, applies both in peace and war. The question is, what do we mean by rules, and what do we mean by government, and what we mean by regulation is, I think, always subject to some degree of a dispute, but any general proposition about how certain kinds of activities ought to be conducted in either peace and war for all of the armed services seems to me to be, again, an essential portion of congressional power, even though the execution of these rules is surely going to be left to the president under Article II. And if you go even further, you will note that there's a very interesting procedure here which says that Congress shall have the power to designate those rules which provide for the calling up of the militia into the actual service of the United States. Uh, there is nothing in the Constitution which, absent congressional authorization, allows the president in his commander-in-chief role to call them up. And in fact, the way in which Article II is worded, it becomes very clear uh, that he becomes commander-in-chief when they're called into active service. The passive voice is designed to indicate that he does not have unilateral powers under those particular issues. 
When you look at Article 2, it has a slightly different configuration. It says, of course, that the president shall be the commander-in-chief of the armed and army and, and the naval forces and the militia when called into actual service. It does not use the word power. John, you and I have had this sort of ongoing debate as to whether or not the use of the word shall be as opposed to the use of the words have the power has any particular significance, and I think actually in this particular case that it does. And let me explain what I think that particular significance ought to be. If you start looking at the words and give the Congress, the President, a commander-in-chief power, and then try to assert that this particular power gives him the ability to initiate conflicts on his own motion, what you do in the Constitution is to create a genuine form of contradiction, which is not what is involved in either separation of powers or in checks and balances. The way this would happen is you have Congress has the power to declare war, and then you also have the President having the power to make war without bothering to go through the question of declaration. It seems to me that that tension is one that can be easily resolved against presidential power by virtue of the assertion that if you look at the president's role as commander-in-chief, it does not, in effect, give him any power which is in conflict with the power that is vested already in the Congress. So one then wants to say precisely what is the role of a commander-in-chief, why is it so important in the overall constitutional scheme. And I think there are many reasons why it's absolutely vital, and none of them, I think, go to the level and claims of executive power that the president has issued. The first point, I think, is vital, which is that when looking at the particular situation, we now realize that the military is going to be subject to civilian control. There is no general in the army who can outrank the president of the United States. So the long tradition that we have of military being subservient to effect civil control is, in fact, a direct and important consequence of Article II. I think it's also important because it gives the president the monopoly over that particular position. There's nothing that Congress can do consistent with the framework of the Constitution to declare that somebody else will become the commander-in-chief of the military. There's no way, in effect, that Congress can, by any form of legislation, sidestep the constitutional authority of the president to discharge this particular role in operation. All of this seems to me to be extremely important and thoroughly consistent with the view that the president doesn't have the power expressly or impliedly to declare war or to start international conflicts on his own initiative. Uh, In looking at this, I think it's also important to understand the way in which this thing was understood at the time. The single most important document for explicating the commander-in-chief is, I think, Federalist Paper Number 69, and it has some very explicit language about how it is that the the president is the first and foremost of the general and admirals, but he's still a general and he's still an admiral. And they also go very explicitly to state that the way in which the president operates as commander-in-chief is not the way the king operated in England, and it's not the way that the governors may be able to operate in the individual states. And the word they use to describe his position is one of inferiority. So what does that then tell us in about the minute or two that I have left about the way in which the president is going to be able to succeed on some of these various claims of inherent executive authority by virtue of being a unitary executive? Well, the first thing it tells you is you've got to distinguish very sharply between the word unitary on the one hand and the talk about inherent presidential authority on the other. There is a unitary executive. We don't have two consuls like they did in Rome. And the one guy is the only one who could exercise these powers. That's perfectly harmless. 
But the idea that there's some vast residual power in the president, which in fact explicitly contradicts the kind of powers that you have already given to Congress, seems to me to be very dangerous. In looking at something like FISA, whether one likes it or not, and basically I'm moderately sympathetic with its general scheme, uh, one has to come to the conclusion that those are at the very least rules and regulations that govern the operation of the land and military forces, that they are certainly things that deal with the scope of congressional power in dealing with foreign commerce, for example, so that it becomes very difficult to say that there's no congressional authorization to do them. And when you start looking at the history, of various cases in which the president has been able to operate on his own, I think all of them are cases in which there was no statutory prohibition against what it was that the president wanted to do, which is a very different world from the one that we have today once that Congress has decided to occupy the field. In working with this analysis, there are always going to be certain kinds of loose points based on the history. It's not perfectly clear, for example, what it is that we mean by a declaration of war. We often use the term authorization of military conflict so as to give some flexibility. I think that's perfectly consistent with the constitutional scheme. There are certain some kinds of low-level military activities which probably don't rise to the level of being war, and it seems to me that declarations for trying to rescue individual prisoners and things of that sort ought not to require some kind of congressional action. But in general, I think that we can say with complete confidence uh, that the real claims of untrammeled executive power are indefensible. If the situation is that the president can decide to bomb Russia today and the only thing that Congress can do is to withhold appropriation in the next two years, that strikes me not as an implementation of our constitutional scheme, but as its total perversion. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, now for something completely different. Um, uh, the subject uh, here is executive power in wartime, and of course the context is the uh, war on terror since 9-11 and the charge of an imperial presidency. Let me say at the outset that I'm less concerned to defend the Bush administration's use of its powers than the powers themselves, because I'm going to defend a fairly robust conception of executive power. I need to say also that I'm here speaking for myself, not for the Cato Institute. And I'm, and I'm going to focus on just two aspects of the question, the president's power to wage war and the NSA surveillance program. Uh, in the few minutes, of course, I'm going to be able to just to sketch these ideas. I want to begin, however, with the context because it seems to me that uh, this goes far toward explaining the why the debate is so intense today. Are we at war? By historical standards, it doesn't seem so. Yet the attacks of 9-11, 3,000 deaths, the bombings around the world since then, the threats that arise daily, uh, tell us that this is hardly ordinary crimes we're talking about. Around the world in recent years, tens of thousands have been killed by the deliberate acts of is Islamic terrorists. The great question before us, then, is whether we're engaged in war or mere law enforcement. I suggest that how you come down on that will largely determine how you see the administration's actions. Were we more clearly at war, the questions would be far fewer. We're not. And to cloud matters even further, the enemy today is in our midst, as 9-11 demonstrated, not in uniforms abroad. That makes waging war all the more difficult and drawing neat legal lines all but impossible, ask the Israelis. Yet if this is war, as I believe it is, then our aim cannot simply be to prosecute terrorists ex post. We've got to act ex ante, uh, just as MI5 did recently with flights out of Heathrow. But in an asymmetrical war, 
How do we do that consistent with the Constitution? I submit that the answer is closer at hand than many have noticed. Quite simply, in foreign affairs, unlike in domestic affairs, and here's where I part company with Richard, the Constitution is deliberately underdetermined and favors the executive. Of course, that means that if it's underdetermined, neither side here is going to be able to speak apodictically. Nevertheless, as between executive and congressional supremacists, the weight of the evidence, I believe, is on the side of executive supremacy, which brings me to my central thesis. The efforts by Congress in recent years in courts of late to insinuate themselves into foreign affairs are fundamentally at war with the theory and history of the Constitution to say nothing of our security. Shocking as this may be in a room full of lawyers, foreign affairs are fundamentally political, not legal. Let me develop that thesis first and very briefly with the most basic foreign affairs power, the power to make and wage war. Where the fundamental constitutional question is, may the president wage war absent a congressional declaration of war? Uh, in the state of nature, Locke tells us, uh, where everyone, of course, is a foreigner, uh, each of us has the executive power to defend his rights by whatever means may be necessary and proper for self-preservation. That's the power we yield up to government in the original position, dividing it in a way that will ensure its effective use on one hand while avoiding abuse on the other. We do that through the Constitution, of course, starting with the vesting clauses, which tell us that Congress's powers are enumerated, whereas the executive and judicial powers are plenary, save where they're reserved, shared, or otherwise delegated. No part of Locke's executive power is lost, however. The only question is where the various parts rest. Thus, the power to declare war rests with Congress, but that's not the same as the power to make or wage war. Uh, those are discrete powers. Declaring war puts the nation in a state of war. It's a juridical power. British kings had the power to both wage and to declare war. They often declared war in the midst of war, moving the nation from an imperfect to a perfect war. The framers understood those distinctions, of course. During the convention, they famously changed the grant to Congress from the broader power to make to the narrower power to declare war. What then became of the power to make war? It remained where it always was as part of the executive power that we yielded up to be exercised by the commander-in-chief. Now, to be sure, the congressional supremacists often point to Madison's convention notes, which uh, say that he and Eldridge Jerry moved to insert declare, striking out make war, leaving the executive the power to repel sudden invasions. But if sudden invasion was meant to limit the executive, it's an odd instrument for that end. Moreover, there's no shortage of evidence cutting the other way, such as Madison's famous response to Patrick Henry at the crucial Virginia ratifying convention. And I quote, the sword is in the hands of the British king. The purse is in the hands of parliament. It is so in America as far as any analogy can exist. Thus, Congress has the power, if it wishes, to restrain a president bent on war. But the declare war clause is not the source of that power. It's a blunt instrument, unsuited for the purpose, and fraught with danger, too. Be careful what you ask for. And history demonstrates its limited use. Over the past 200 years, presidents have sent troops into hostilities abroad over 100 times, yet on only five such occasions has Congress declared war. Are do we suppose that those, all those occasions were ultra-virus and unconstitutional? Courts addressed that question fairly clearly in 2000 in Campbell v. Clinton. War is a consummate political affair. That's why presidents ought to go to Congress not to get authorization, which they don't need, but to get the support of the people. 
Of course, the last thing we need is judges telling us that an invasion was not sudden enough to warrant a presidential response. We're not there yet, fortunately. But if presidents may wage war without a declaration, they surely must have the implicit power to gather the intelligence necessary to do that. We come then to my second concern, the NSA surveillance issue. Let's note first that foreign intelligence gathering is a round-the-clock issue done in war and peace alike. Every president since George Washington has practiced it. Indeed, it's their duty under their oath of office. In 1978, however, reacting to certain abuses, Congress insinuated itself into the matter when it enacted FISA, uh, the complex scheme for regulating a presidential duty. Richard Posner has well stated the practical problems it may serve, he said, for monitoring the communications of known terrorists, but it's hopeless as a framework for detecting terrorists. It requires that surveillance be conducted pursuant to warrants based on probable cause to believe that the target of surveillance is a terrorist when the desperate need is to find out who is a terrorist, which he likens to finding a needle in a haystack. Others, of course, have pointed out how hopelessly out-of-date FISA is in the modern world of digital communications. Practical and uh, technical problems aside, the questions for us, of course, are legal. Uh, Only one court, of course, three months ago has ever found NASA uh, NSA program violates the Fourth Amendment uh, in an opinion from which all but the New York Times have sought distance. My my apologies to Neil here on that. Uh, More thoughtful administration critics, including two on this panel, point rather to the FISA statute than add in response to the president's constitutional objections that even conceding that the president may gather intelligence abroad, Congress indisputably has authority to regulate electronic surveillance within the U.S., the very place, let me note, where we want most to gather that intelligence in this war on terror. The issues here, of course, are far too complex to be addressed in a couple of minutes I have left. Indeed, the Federalist Society has published a 135-page answer to the critics, which I commend to you. But for all the complexity, the dispute boils down in the end to the simple question of whether the president is the nation's principal agent in matters of war and peace, and if so, whether Congress has authority to try to micromanage the exercise of that power. Madison, Jefferson, Hamilton, uh, all uh, were quite clear on the point. Here's Madison. All powers in of executive nature not particularly taken away must belong to that department. Jefferson adding, exceptions are to be construed strictly, a rare point of agreement between Jefferson and Hamilton. Uh, indeed, where precisely among Congress's enumerated powers is the font of its claim to intrude on this inherent executive power? The power to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, that's the power to establish the system of military law and justice outside the ordinary jurisdiction of the civil courts. The necessary and proper clause, that's the power to afford the means for carrying into execution the various other powers of government, not the power to impede another branch in the performance of its constitutional duties. At bottom, the critics invite us to believe that a power presidents have exercised unproblematically for nearly 200 years can be restricted by the mere stroke of a congressional pen, and to believe further that during this year that Congress has fiddled over revising FISA to meet the new realities, the president should have abandoned the surveillance program. The cases uh, say nothing of the sort. Youngstown, which the critics often cite, the Keith case of 1972, the Inri Sealed case of 2002, all clearly distinguish domestic surveillance for ordinary law enforcement purposes from foreign intelligence gathering, citing an earlier case called Trong that dealt with the pre-FISA surveillance based on, and I quote, the president's constitutional responsibility to conduct the foreign affairs of the United States. The FISA appeals court said, and I quote again, the Trong court, as did all the other courts to have decided the issue, 
held that the president did have inherent authority to conduct warrantless searches to obtain foreign intelligence information. We take for granted that the president does have that authority, and assuming that is so, FISA could not encroach on the president's constitutional power. Supreme Court let the decision stand. Let me conclude by stepping back just a bit. What we're seeing here, I submit, is the latest stage of the progressive era about which Richard has written so colorfully and correctly for the Cato Institute, I might note. Um, In the 30s, the progressives essentially rewrote the Constitution submitting to the tender mercies of the congressional micromanagement vast areas of life that the Constitution had left to private ordering. Having largely completed the effort by the late 60s in the great society, they turned their attention to two areas of the Constitution had left mainly to political ordering, campaign finance and foreign affairs. Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971, the Draconian Amendments of 74, to say nothing of the recent McCain-Feingold Act, the War Powers Resolution of 73, the FISA Statute of 78, all are efforts by Congress to micromanage what to then had largely been ordered by politics. And in each case, Congress has made a mess of things, of course, as we all know. Law is a safeguard against the rule of man, to be sure, But overdone, law itself is tyrannical. The social engineers of the 30s sowed the seeds of the modern regulatory state under which so many today are suffocating. The same hubris in Hayek's sense drove the activists of the 70s to believe that they too could order and micromanage campaign finance and foreign affairs through comprehensive regulatory schemes. And here too, the predictable results are before us. FISA led to the pre-9-11 wall between law enforcement and counterintelligence, as frustrated agents would later testify. We can't afford that kind of micromanagement, nor does the Constitution permit it. Here again, the founders got it right when they left these political questions to politics. Thank you. Let let me begin by saying when we talk about the president's authority and his role as commander-in-chief, it's important to distinguish between two conceptions of that authority. Uh, The first is the authority to act in the first instance, so that if the president acts beyond that authority, he's simply acting unconstitutionally because the Constitution has not empowered him to do something. So to the extent that the commander-in-chief authority carries with it a certain set of powers, we can say something along the lines that, while the president may act reasonably, whatever that means, and in a proper manner, whatever that means, to uh, further his uh, responsibilities as commander-in-chief. And there will be outer boundaries there. So the president, for example, as commander-in-chief, can't set the prices for the sale of chicken in peacetime in Nebraska. That would be a violation of the Constitution because the president would be exceeding the power of commander-in-chief if that's what he claimed was the source of authority. But that's going to be a reasonably broad power within the realm, at least, of issues relating to uh, the military security of the United States. That's one way of defining the power, and it's a relatively broad one. The other way, however, of defining the power is what is the core of the commander-in-chief authority that may not be impaired by legislation or that, beyond that, uh, exempts the president from what otherwise would be the commands of the Constitution. Now, those are very different conceptions of the commander-in-chief authority, 
and it's important to keep them separate. What too often happens in debates about this question is people conflate the first with the second. That is, they think because the president might have the power, if no one else has put a check on it, to do something as commander-in-chief, that therefore no one can put a check on it. And that's a serious defect of reasoning. So certainly, for example, the president could institute, I think this would be on controversial propositions, uh, electronic surveillance of individuals entirely overseas in order to gather information uh, to strengthen the, the military uh, and national security missions of the United States. Uh, that would be clearly within the commander-in-chief power. No one would argue that the president was exceeding the boundaries of that power um, in instituting uh, such a program or deciding where the uh, military forces of the United States should be stationed around the world. Um, surely that's within the authority of the president to make those decisions in his role as commander-in-chief. So that's really not been the question that's been at issue in any of the disputes over the past several years. The question instead has been whether purported limitations on the power of the executive as commander-in-chief are themselves unconstitutional because they impair the core authority of the commander-in-chief. So an example of this is both the FISA statute that you just heard about from Roger, who, with, with whom I strongly disagree. Uh, another example would be the government's policy that was reflected, say, in the detention of Jose Padilla. Um, another example would be the president's promulgation of an executive order with respect to um, military commissions. So let me take a moment or two on at least the first of those questions to give a sense of why I think that, in fact, in both the, the NSA situation and the Padilla situation, uh, the executive did go considerably beyond the bounds of what the Constitution allows. In the first case, because of statute, and in the second case, because of the Constitution. Um, so in the NSA case, uh, as Roger said, before 1978, there were um, no explicit statutory limitations on the authority of presidents to engage in foreign intelligence surveillance. But in 1978, uh, after the disclosures of abuses that had taken place uh, in the prior quarter century, and after six years earlier, the Supreme Court had unanimously, in the Keith case, rejected the claim of the executive branch that the president had inherent authority to engage in national security, domestic national security wiretaps without probable cause and a warrant, and clearly put aside the question of whether the same holding would be true for foreign intelligence surveillance. That question then became an open question. Since the president does not have the authority, after Keith, to engage in national security wiretaps without probable cause and a warrant, what happens when the president wants to engage in foreign intelligence surveillance? And so Congress in 1978, with both the question having been raised and left open by the Supreme Court, and in light of the abuses of the preceding years, 
enacted the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And it's important to note that when we talk here, again, we too casually say, can Congress limit the president? But what we really mean is, can the government limit the president? Because after all, when FISA is enacted, it's signed by a president. It's not as if this is a situation where Congress has enacted a law over a veto. It's a law that's been duly enacted with the cooperation and support of the executive branch at the time that it's enacted. So it's simply a subsequent president disagreeing with the prior president, but it's not as if it's the Congress as a separate institution imposing its will on the executive. At least at a particular moment in time, the Congress and the executive at that time agreed that this was an appropriate limitation. FISA clearly attempted to restrict, intended to restrict, foreign intelligence surveillance to situations where there was probable cause and a warrant obtained from the special FISA court, which was created in order to enable the security concerns of foreign intelligence surveillance to be um, preserved. And so far as we know, the requirements of FISA were uh, complied with by every president until George Bush, second. Now, what is the argument for saying we're going to disregard FISA? The argument is that it's unconstitutional or that the president has been authorized to disregard it. Well, the, f the second argument is truly bogus. It's the argument that the authorization to use military force, authorizing the use of force against those who committed 9-11, was intended to and had the effect of abrogating the president's responsibilities under FISA. And that would be a plausible argument, but for the fact that FISA itself explicitly anticipated declarations of war and said that in the event of a declaration of war, the president shall have 15 days in which to act outside the limitations of FISA, but only 15 days. And if he wants to seek an amendment to FISA, he should go to Congress and seek an amendment. So the proper, and now it may be, as Roger said, that FISA is out of date. And it may be that in light of 9-11, we would want to authorize the president to engage in a much more aggressive form of foreign intelligence surveillance than FISA permits. Both of those propositions are perfectly plausible. But the proper way, the legal way, the constitutional way for the executive to approach that question is to go to Congress and seek an amendment to FISA. That's what FISA anticipated. Not to disregard FISA secretly, and I'll come back to the secretly point in a moment, and to institute, in defiance of the law, a program that, in my view, clearly was unlawful, and where there was a perfectly sensible way to address the question, which is to say, it's a bad law, it's no longer an up-to-date law, technology has changed, our national security needs have changed, give me more power, and then there could be a, a debate and a conclusion on the issue. The Padilla case is another example. Here, the executive branch makes a determination secretly that it has the inherent authority to seize an American citizen at O'Hare Airport, to bring him to a military base, not to inform anyone, friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, that he has been seized by the United States government, held incommunicado in a military base, not given any access to a lawyer, 
not allowed to have any judicial determination as to the legality of the detention, but rather the executive branch made its own judgment that it should have the authority to detain an American citizen under these circumstances in what I would regard and what the Supreme Court in the Hamdi case implicitly held, clear violation of the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment. And indeed, in what virtually every lawyer in the United States should know is a clear violation of the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment. Now again, if the President wanted the power to do this, if he thought that the circumstances facing the United States were so dire that he needed the authority to seize people, hold them incommunicado for as long as he wanted, with no hearing, no lawyer, in secret. Then he could have gone to Congress and said, I want this power. Congress could have decided whether it was an appropriate power. And then eventually, court could have decided whether or not that violated due process. But instead, the president instituted this process on his own, not seeking congressional approval, and attempting to hide it from the judiciary. Now, I don't see any plausible argument one can make that this is inherent in the commander-in-chief power to seize an American citizen on American soil in those circumstances to essentially completely moot the right to habeas corpus. We're not talking now about Guantanamo Bay. We're not talking now about non-citizens. This is, in my view, the most reckless claim of executive authority in the history of the United States and surely does not comport with the Constitution. And this is where I'll come to the final observation, which is that there are two dangers, at least, in overly aggressive assertions of executive authority. One is, of course, the violation of separation of powers, the arrogation to the executive of authority to do things without the opportunity of the Congress to weigh in. But the other, even more troubling in some respect, is secrecy. Is not only in these instances is the president attempting to act without congressional authorization, but without anyone's knowledge. And that, in my view, is the real reason for not going to Congress to seek authority to do what the executive branch did to Jose Padilla or to do what it did with NSA. It simply didn't want to even ask permission because it knew it would be politically a problem. And so it just did it. That is not consistent with the American constitutional system. It is devious, it is dishonest, and it is dangerous in terms of the future of the American system. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, to the Federal Society for inviting me to uh, speak at 6 a.m. my time this morning. I don't know why they chose to do that. It's also a great pleasure uh, to be on uh, this panel uh, with distinguished uh, commentators and professors. We've been having, I think, the three of us, four of us, a running debate in the press in different locations about these issues. It's great to actually be on one place at one time. I want to correct one thing uh, about my introduction because if I don't, my uh, agent, book agent would kill me, and she'd probably go after Richard and Jeff, too, because we're all represented by the same agent, oddly enough, uh, which is that, bo- that my book is actually fourth, has forthcome. <laughs> so, and it's uh, very attractively priced and <laughs> comes in a wonderful Christmas colors, 
almost can fit in a stocking. Um, actually, um, writing a, a book like this was uh, kind of interesting because I'd never written a sort of a popular book before. Um, I, I sort of was introduced to this whole world of book ranking and publicity and so on. But one thing that really uh, I recommend to those of you who write books is not to watch how your book is doing on Amazon, which ranks how your book is doing on an hourly basis versus every other book ever written. And you will find that your roommates in law school will delight in emailing you about which books are ahead of you. Um, for example, every book ever written about Curious George will be ahead of <laughs> any book involving the law. So let me just uh, try to quickly uh, go through some of these points because um, uh, you know, limited time. Uh, first, I think Roger did an excellent job sort of summarizing the formalist case for uh, presidential power growing in response to war and emergency. I also just sort of supplement that with sort of a functional approach, uh, which is actually not something I'm used to, but I actually think functionalists have more fun because they can make arguments that can't really be checked against anything hard, any kind of data, but you can sort of balance all kinds of values and it tends to be a lot more interesting. So uh, if you were to supplement the formalist case with a functionalist argument, this is one that really does stretch back to John Locke and then to uh, the Federalist Papers was the idea that the executive branch would be the one that was most effective at waging war because it had unity, secrecy, the ability to act with decision, and not just that, but also the idea that the legislature could not anticipate future problems, future emergencies in written antecedent laws. And so the very notion or idea of executive power was not just that it would execute the written laws, but that when the public safety required it, it would be able to act quickly to respond to those kinds of threats. I don't think that's actually inconsistent with what uh, Jeff described as the first type of argument about executive power. And that's actually how I would characterize it in a wiretapping program is that in response to a great attack that was clearly unforeseen by those who wrote the FISA law, the president had to respond quickly and at times secretly in order to intercept these kinds of communications uh, with terrorists inside and outside the United States and that you wouldn't at first want to have a broad public discussion about it because in doing so, you would be tipping off the enemy about our technological advantages and being able to catch their communications. And I think the president has now said, and I think it becomes clear, that this program has been able to pick up communications that have led to the acquisition of actionable intelligence that has led to the prevention of attacks on the country. I think it's, it's very much an action that was consistent with Locke's view of the executive. Let me also supplement uh, what... Uh, Roger said with a discussion of history, not the framing period history, but the history of our country, the history of our country in wartime since the framing. And I would throw out this argument. Um, if you like it, I promise I'll write another book and maybe I'll beat Curious George this time. But the basic thesis I have is that our greatest presidents, the ones, if you look at the polls of all the political scientists and historians and law professors, of who our greatest presidents are, those have been the ones who have drawn deeply upon this reservoir of constitutional power, have made at times what people at the time thought were dictatorial, extraordinary claims of executive power, but did so to protect the country. And because of that, we have seen, we have, history has thought them to be quite successful, not because they drew just on the power, but because they matched the power to rise to the occasion of great emergencies, and history has judged them well. And that 
some of our worst presidents have been ones that have felt themselves constrained by the understanding of constitutional law held at that time and felt that as president they could not do much, did not have the initiative. The most obvious example would be President Buchanan, who as president thought he had no executive power to try to bring together a summit of northern and southern leaders to try to head off the Civil War. But our greatest president is probably Abraham Lincoln. And look at some of the things he did at the start of the Civil War. In response to the Civil War, he raised money out of the Treasury, which is a direct violation of the Constitution. He raised an army without congressional permission. He put up a blockade and invaded the South, all without any kind of congressional permission. He also instituted a series of military detention, not just of Confederate soldiers, but of people who were rebels and sympathizers behind Union lines. And he created a system of military commissions that tried thousands of people um, outside the civilian system. He did not ask for congressional permission of the military detention and trial system until 1863. And not just that, this is also something not just about the starting of the war, but the conduct of the war. Right? I mean, President Lincoln, in his commander-in-chief power, freed the slaves. The Emancipation Proclamation is issued pursuant solely to the president's commander-in-chief power. It seems to me a theory that would say, well, the commander-in-chief power essentially has no substance other than saying he's the top general, has to account for how would you have run the Civil War? Would you be willing to reverse all of these decisions that Lincoln had made on his own authority? Let's turn to a sort of more modern hero of uh, progressives everywhere, who would be Franklin Roosevelt, who's even a clearer case of presidents acting against laws because they feel that they're important for national security to protect the country. So look, it's just kind of funny. I think these days we often forget uh, the lead-up to World War II. In the lead-up to World War II, Congress passed a series of neutrality acts designed to prevent the United States from entering into the war. President Roosevelt, uh, I think many people now believe, violated those laws. He provided destroyers to the British. He provided aid to the Allies. He also essentially got the United States Navy into a shooting war with German submarines in the Atlantic well before Pearl Harbor in order to protect convoys to Great Britain. President Roosevelt, you know, President Bush, I'm afraid, was not the first person to think of this idea of warrantless wiretapping. In May 1940, over a year and a half before Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt ordered uh, J. Edgar Hoover to conduct interception, not of just international phone calls, but every communication in the United States, all phone calls in the United States, to search for, quote-unquote, subversive elements who would be helping the Axis powers during the war. At that time, there was a statute which prohibited any warrantless interception of calls. There wasn't even a FISA at the time. And there was a Supreme Court decision interpreting those laws saying that um, the president and the executive branch could not seek that kind of authority. And now if you look at the the memoirs of Frank, uh, I'm sorry, the the memoirs of Justice Jackson, who was attorney general at that time, he talked to members of Congress quietly about getting Congress to approve that program. He was told that members of Congress would not vote for it, and so he decided that the executive branch and the Justice Department would continue to do it anyway. President Roosevelt also, in addition to all these other things, also um, detained an American citizen without a civilian jury trial, right, and took them into a military court in the case of Kieran. Again, the president had to draw on these authorities to respond to these great emergencies to the United States and its national security. And under the, I think, the vision uh, uh, that some of the critics have raised, again, you would constrain the the ability of Roosevelt or Lincoln to respond to the Civil War or World War II in the most effective way 
to protect the country. So bring this forward. Um, In the Cold War period, presidents often waged authority, often in in ways that we have come to uh, admire and praise. Think about President Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right? President Kennedy didn't check with Congress. He didn't get any congressional authorization. If you think about it, this was a species of preemptive war. All that was happening was the Soviet Union was trying to base missiles in Cuba. They weren't about to imminently launch them. Right? We put up a blockade around Cuba, which is an act of war, in order to forestall a serious change in the balance of power. Congress never approved it. President Kennedy not only put in the blockade, he determined all the rules of engagement. He made all the tactical and strategic decisions, as a commander-in-chief would. And Congress went along and eventually thought, uh, approved it. And we all think of this as the greatest moment of Kennedy's uh, leadership in his presidency. So, so let me uh, just turn uh, to the future a little bit. To me, it seems that I, I quite agree with Roger that the war powers and these questions are to be determined by the political process when the president and Congress use their constitutional powers to cooperate or fight about war policy. I think the thing that makes this war different and unusual is not just the nature of the enemy, which is very different, and the nature of the conflict, which is much more based on secrecy and intelligence rather than outproducing the enemy with the size of the military or larger armies, but also the, the way that the courts have, I think, dramatically expanded their role and their desire to uh, impose a more intrusive species of review on what the executive and Congress are doing. And you can just see that in the series of um, exchanges between the courts and Congress and the executive branch over the detention issue and the role of habeas corpus. At the end of World War II, the Supreme Court said that we are not going to exercise judicial review over enemy alien combatants held outside the United States. And that was the law since 1950, if not earlier, in a case called Johnson versus Eisentrager. When we were in the administration, we based a lot of these decisions on a series of World War II decisions, like Eisentrager. I think the court in Razul two years ago pretty much effectively overruled that decision without saying so and suggested that the writ of habeas corpus would extend to anybody held by the United States anywhere in the world, something that the World War, the World War II Supreme Court clearly rejected. Congress overruled Razul, or tried to overrule Razul. The Supreme Court in Hamdan this summer I think, tried to ignore the clear congressional commands uh, in the Detainee Treatment Act. And then the Congress, just a month and a half ago, has tried to overrule the court again, right? Because Congress has a control over the jurisdiction of the courts. And that's a more complicated issue we can get to again. But I think it's extraordinary to think about this if you compare it to, say, the Civil War, World War II, the idea that the courts are now for at least twice and perhaps in the future a third time, struggle with Congress to try to narrow its policy decisions where Congress is trying to support the decisions of the executive branch in more time. So the thing that troubles me is that the courts are sort of constructing this uh, rule uh, demanding clear statements on the behalf of Congress and to delegate a peacetime system where you're going to have a series of very precise rules that are attempting to govern the war on terrorism. It doesn't make more sense uh, I think more akin to some areas of administrative state where the executive branch is given a lot of discretion and a fair amount of room to run in trying to flexibly meet those challenges with, with the best legal rules possible. Thank you. I want to uh, give the panel uh, an opportunity of about two minutes each uh, to respond uh, to some of what they've already heard, uh, beginning with you, Professor Epstein. Uh, I think I'll just sit here. Yeah, I mean, I, 
I think it is somewhat extraordinary to hear this constant praise of presidents who've managed to violate the Constitution in the course of war, um, particularly since it's not at all clear to me that those parallels are exact to the ones here. So let me just start with a couple of simple observations. First, on, on the executive power and the congressional power, I I'd strongly disagree with Roger that somehow or other this is just a replay of the progressive era with respect to the Commerce Clause. When I read the phrase to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, I don't think of setting up a set of tribunals to handle court-martials. Well, that's done elsewhere in the Constitution with inferior tribunals and so forth. I think, in effect, what the distribution was is originally understood, I think without any doubt, is that the basic rules of the game are going to be set by the Congress and then the President has to take care to see that the laws are faithfully executed, and that includes the laws that deal with the regulation and operation of war. And to the extent that you have an explicit command from FISA which deals with these things and a president who decides to disregard it, that's a very serious kind of constitutional challenge and that one ought not to be so cavalier with language and to argue that somehow or other a commander-in-chief power which looks to be one to execute rather than to one to frame policy is in effect a giant trump which knocks all this around. And the second point is I think that with respect to the individual situations, again, one has to be very clear. Um, there are cases like Johnson and Eisentrager. They were not questions that dealt with the legality of the detention in the sense there was no dispute as to whether or not these people were Germans fighting. Uh, they were extraterritorial. Uh, Guantanamo Bay will not be treated, I think, as though it's extraterritorial with respect to these various writs, and so that I do think that habeas corpus will run there. And in terms of the question of saying that the attack which took place five years ago places us in a perpetual state of war, I think that misunderstands very very seriously what was at stake originally in the idea of an emergency exception. Um, if, in fact, there is a sudden attack which does not give power for deliberation, then, of course, the president better act because there's no one else who could do so with dispatch, and that has never been disputed by anybody on either side of this particular debate. But when you have five years that go by and there is simply a cat-and-mouse game and nobody wants to speak, then it seems to me that you really do want to have some congressional authorization, and one should fault the president very seriously for not going to Congress and saying, I need to revise these laws. It is not, as John says, that you want the administration um, to explain uh, exactly every intelligence technique that it has. It surely is not supposed to do that. I'm going to have to end uh, filibuster okay. again. Uh, but to <laughs> act under circumstances where they make clear what the rules should be. I do think that this impasse is a real national tragedy. Well, let me start by commending Richard for uh, pointing to the difficult problem of resolving the history and his reading of the Constitution, which suggests that maybe the problem is in his reading of the Constitution. And so I will start, in fact, with his just, point he's just made, rules for regulation and government of the uh, of the armed forces, that has always been understood to allow Congress to establish the Uniform Court of Military Justice, for example. I, come, I, I refer you to the Heritage Foundation book on the Constitution, which discusses that clause in some detail and gives you references to that. Um, he then uh, uh, talks about the uh, low-level uh, uh, actions could be taken without a declaration of war. Uh, this is gets us into the kind of line-drawing problem that will eventually end up in the courts, and the courts are the least qualified to make this kind of judgment. Uh, this is simply a non-justiciable issue. 
The president has a wide range of powers, everything from diplomacy to the Korean War by way of conducting foreign policy. When you get micromanagement of that by the court, you're asking for a prescription that it, I think none of us wants to uh, address. Indeed, uh, in Campbell v. Clinton, the court uh, addressed this and said this is a political question. Uh, with respect to some of the points that um, Jeffrey made, I would note that the Keith case involved a domestic threat. It clearly distinguished the power to address that under ordinary law enforcement paradigm versus the foreign affairs power. And every other case, as the in sealed case made clear, has done the same thing, made that clear distinction between domestic law enforcement and, and the, um, uh, the, the um, I would just conclude with one point. Are we to conclude from what the other side has said that um, uh, all these undeclared wars were unconstitutional or or exercises were all unconstitutional. Secondly, um, are we to suppose that uh, if FISA indeed is to control everything, including right now, while Congress has been fiddling with this issue, it's had it for a year since the New York Times released it, and it still hasn't been able to come up with any revision of FISA, should the president therefore have stopped this surveillance? I dare say in the world in which we live today, I don't think there's anyone in this room who would call for that, and I hope the other side would not call for that either. Jeff. I would. I I think it's illegal, and I think that, therefore, Congress would act one way or the other much more precipitously, much more quickly, if, in fact, um, the president stopped the program. But by continuing the program, he makes it unnecessary for Congress to address the hard issue. I, I guess I quickly want to respond to, to John's invocation of people like Lincoln and Roosevelt, um, just to say that those who admire Roosevelt and Lincoln don't necessarily admire everything they did. And they were both, in their own way, great presidents. But that does not mean that the internment of Japanese Americans or the suspensions of the writ of habeas corpus in the middle of the war uh, the Civil War were justified or defensible actions. So it's possible to be a great president and still make some terrible blunders. And I think in both Roosevelt and Lincoln's cases, that's clearly the case. Um, the other thing I'd say is, is about the invocation of cases like Quarren and Johnson versus um, Eisentrager and so on. And it, it, it's sort of an interesting question of these are cases that go back 60-some years. And constitutional law, for better or worse, and many people may say for worse, but for better or worse, constitutional law has changed profoundly over that period of time. And the notion that one would invoke a 60-year-old constitutional precedent and assume that that sort of just disposed of the question today wouldn't be true in almost any area of constitutional law. And I don't see any reason why that should be the case in either Johnson or Quarren either. That isn't to say that they were wrong or that they, a court shouldn't reach the same result today or that they have no presidential value. But the notion that in a world in which our entire constitutional system has radically changed, um, we should therefore slavishly follow decisions that were reached in a different constitutional world doesn't seem to me very compelling. Professor Yee, uh, I'll waive my time for the audience. All right. Uh, Now one of the favorite times. Uh, All right. I'm going to remind every questioner of one one thing. Ask a question. (laughs) Or judge. Judge, we we always follow your orders. Um, Principally for Jeff and and, and Roger, um, could uh, Congress amend FISA to constitutionally provide that except for 15 days after a declared war, 
the president has to go to this newly named FISA and collateral damage bombing court to get approval for every single one of his bombings during uh, such a war, except maybe he could get 72 hours to continue certain ones that he can't get prior approval for. And if not, why is that any more in the core of the commander-in-chief power than military intelligence decisions to determine who is and is not the enemy? I would say that hypothetical statute would be unconstitutional, that it would intrude too directly on the core of the commander-in-chief power. And the distinction I would draw is that decisions about where and when to bomb in, in the midst of a conflict are very different than deciding to engage in electronic surveillance of American citizens on American soil. They're both related to the fighting of the war, but one of them is much more bound up in what one would think a commander-in-chief can do. And I agree with Richard that the point of the commander-in-chief is much more like the senior admiral or the senior general than it is like the commander of the nation. And so it seems to me that there are, you have to draw lines between what are the limits of that core um, commander-in-chief power. And I, I think that if Congress decides and, 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 a, and a president agrees in legislation that the, the president should not be engaging in surveillance of American citizens on American soil, that that's not so essential to the core of the commander-in-chief power that it would be unconstitutional. Uh, Jeff and Richard are taking the domestic model and transposing it over to the international uh, foreign affairs side, and I think that that's the fundamental mistake that's uh, going on here. The framers, you look at their language, you look at Locke, for example, and he was very clear, particular rules are not the way you handle foreign affairs. And the framers as well made it very clear that the president has uh, the primary responsibility here and the, uh, the um, uh, Congress's powers are to be construed narrowly. That kind of a statute seems to me, uh, Todd, would be clearly unconstitutional. Uh, the, and in fact, I would note that in, in response to something that Jeffrey said, that uh, he said the, 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 the government uh, signed on to FISA. When uh, the Carter administration signed that, Attorney General Griffin Bell made very clear that this does not apply to the foreign intelligence gathering, very explicit on that point, and the point has never been tested. The INRI sealed case, which is the most definitive case on FISA, was a test with respect to Fourth Amendment. It was not a test with respect to separation of powers. Can I make a comment? Yes. Yeah, I, yeah. I think in effect... Professor Epstein's pulled out his copy of the Constitution, I, I, printed I, by I, the Cato I, Institute. I, I, I mean, it's, the Cato, <laughs> it's the Cato Constitution. Which Roger ought to read. Um. <laughs> my, my son asked me, Daddy, did you write We the, uh, we the People? How could I disappoint him? <laughs> well, he's rewriting it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of the things that is so striking about the document is that nowhere does it say that the foreign affairs of the United States shall be vested in the President of the United States. Um, it says the President shall have the power to receive ambassadors, to make treaties subject to the consent and so forth. And one of the things that you have to worry about in all of these analyses is to sort of take particular clauses which are narrow in their scope and then to put them into very broad context and to create this argument that somehow or other all foreign affairs belong to the President. Um, that's not there, nor should it be there. 
Uh, we do have a division of powers, and I think what one has to ask is how we respect it. And this then leads to the other point. There's nothing in the Constitution which says that the powers of Congress in Article I with respect to the regulation of the war shall be narrowly construed. Um, what's really happening here is you've got explicit powers that are narrowly construed and implied powers that are broadly construed, and it seems to me that that's a very dangerous way to undergo constitutional interpretation. Just a brief comment about Richard's uh, point is that he, he's really illustrating, I think, quite well the difference between textualism and originalism because he sort of pulls out this little constitution and sort of reads the text without any mooring in the context of how it was written and the understandings of the time. And I know he doesn't carry the Federalist Papers around with him because he didn't, didn't refer to how they referred to the, executive, the understanding of executive control or foreign affairs. You would look at the British practice. You would look at what people said. There's no one in the framing of debates who calls the foreign affairs power congressional power. Instead, it's thought to be by all the philosophers of the time and British practice as an executive power. And then the framers vested the executive power, all the executive power, in the president. Uh, in contrast to Article One, which says the legislative powers here and enumerated are vested in Congress. So there has to be some... <laughs> Go ahead, Richard. Let's um, take look, I mean, when you read Federalist 69, the one thing they do is explicitly reject the British analogy with respect to the distribution of powers. Their attitude is the commander-in-chief is the most important general in the entire system. It is not that he is some kind of ubermensch. He is the commander-in-chief of the Army and Naval Forces. He's not commander-in-chief of the United States. The, the, the Madison quote I gave you goes exactly opposite what Richard just said. And, of course, every decision well, up to Curtis Wright in 1936 made it clear. Well, at least Professor Epstein has now referred to the Federalist Papers. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Good morning. Uh, this, this question is directed to Professor Yu, but I invite the other panelists to comment if they so choose. Uh, my question has to do with the Military Commission Act of 2006. It's a question I asked yesterday, but didn't get a very satisfactory answer. You didn't uh, ask me, though. <laughs> <laughs> My question has to do with the, uh, the, the presidential power and the jurisdictions specifically of military commissions to prosecute for violations of the laws of war. Under pre-existing Supreme Court precedent and under the laws of war, the president had authority to institute military commissions to try unlawful enemy combatants, whether civilian or non-civilian, whether alien or, or civilian. And my question is, uh, under the Military Act of 2006, they specifically excluded civilian unlawful enemy combatants because the jurisdiction only has to do with alien unlawful enemy combatants. And my question is, in doing so, did they effectively adopt Justice Scalia's dissent in Hamdi, which said that if you have an, a civilian unlawful enemy combatant, that they have to be tried for treason in a civilian court as opposed to a military tribunal? That's, that's a good question. I don't know if I read the Military Commission Act that way. I think it defines, um, you know, illegal enemy combatants and then legal enemy combatants, and I believe it also makes clear that al-Qaeda fighters are illegal enemy combatants and they're subject to military commission trial. Um, I don't think it draws uh, the distinction you're talking about in terms of who's subject to the commissions. The distinction you're talking about is drawn, I think, in the scope of the writ of habeas corpus. So the thing that's actually... I think extraordinary about the act is that it actually overrules previous cases that had said alien enemy combatants on U.S. territory could still file for a writ. Um, and that was really what the Razul and Handy are about. If you read the MCA closely, it actually removes the right of 
aliens who are enemy combatants to file for writ of habeas corpus, even if they're within the United States, which I don't, I don't know why the act does that, because there's no one in that category, as far as I know right now, who's knocking. But I think that's, that's where the civilian, non-civilian, I'm sorry, citizen, non-citizen line really is important. But I don't think it comes up just in the jurisdiction of the military Actually, it does. Themselves. In the personal jurisdiction of the act, it says alien unlawful enemy combatants. It, does, it specifically excludes mm-hmm. citizen enemy combatants. I, I would say that I have to go back and check. The other thing I would say is that um, this may also be just because President Bush's original order also said citizens who are illegal enemy combats would not be tried by a military commission, and he's sort of repeatedly said he would not do that. And so in seeking support from Congress for the system he put together, he wouldn't ask – I would think he wouldn't ask for it anyway. But I don't think it means he's given up the any constitutional authority to – I guess that's my question. Well, that- well, look, we've got the room till 1030. We, we need to uh, – we need to uh, – Make the both the questions and answers as uh, as brief to allow as many uh, as we can. Uh, Jerry Walpin. Um, I this is addressed to Professors Stone and Epstein. I noticed that neither of you referred to the famous Justice Jackson and Justice Goldberg statement that the Constitution is not a suicide pact. Um, I notice in that regard that Professor Stone claimed that the reason our administration didn't go to Congress for approval of a change of Pfizer was purely politics. Could it, would you comment on whether it, there isn't some basis for not going to Congress to tell the world what the methods the government are using in order to defeat the enemy, that is the Surveillance Act, uh, the wiretapping, And the second part of the question is, given your statement about Abe Lincoln being a great president, but he may have done things unconstitutional, would you favor a statute now similar to that granted to um, Japanese Americans compensating southern slave owners for the unconstitutional deprivation of property in the slaves because that was at that time property? Well, obviously, on on the latter question, I mean, that was a serious issue at the time, was whether you could take the property in that context. And I, except for the time period passing in the same way about reparations for slavery, I I don't think that's a crazy question at all. I mean, I think that, that that, that destroying the right of property in slavery in states where it was legal posed a very serious question about whether that was a deprivation of property without due process and required compensation. I don't think that 150 years later it's any more useful a question than it is on the reparations issue for slavery. But the principle that you raise, I think, is a perfectly legitimate one. Um, the I forgot the first question. Give me one. Whether yeah. you had, uh, you referred to the reason. Oh, the suicide pact. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. Right. Well, first of all, um, Attorney General Gonzalez has been quoted as saying that the reason they didn't go to Congress was because they didn't think they could get the law passed. Uh, that is a change of FISA. Um, but, but beyond that, um, there's obviously some possibility that, this, that seeking a change in FISA would have revealed information that would have been harmful to the national security. But I'm very skeptical about that because it's perfectly possible to amend the statute without having to go into any of the technical nature 
of the investigations you're going to do. You simply say you don't need a warrant or probable cause anymore. You don't have to explain exactly what you're doing or how you're doing it. So I don't think that there was any necessary um, uh, endangering of national security by raising the question of amending FISA. And, and third, I make the point my uh, Richard and my colleague Dick Posner has made about uh, this uh, in a book called Not a Suicide Pact, uh, which is that in the war on terrorism, it may be much more important to prevent terrorists from using effective means of communication than it is to actually catch them. So that if you do, in fact, alert them to the fact that they can no longer use cell phones and they can no longer use email, and they actually act the way you say you fear, which is they will stop using emails and stop using cell phones, Posner's argument is that's the best outcome you could possibly have because that would make it virtually impossible for them to coordinate. So you would want them to know in effect, that they should no longer feel any safety in using these means of communication. So his argument on that score is that as a national security matter, you may be better off, in fact, preventing them effectively from using those means of communication than catching an occasional terrorist. Yeah, look, I mean, I think if this point was seriously taken, then we couldn't even have this discussion. But frankly, I had figured out that cell phones would be an ideal mode of communication for terrorists independent of any revelations by Congress. Uh, the position, if taken seriously, would mean that you couldn't even have a congressional oversight hearing to talk about any of these issues, because that might tip your hand. We've dealt with intelligence issues in the CIA, with confidential hearings on part of the matters and public hearings on the others, for centuries in and out of war. And it seems to me that there's no reason why we should suspend those judgments when it comes to FISA and its potential revision. Yes. You had briefly mentioned uh, the idea that Guantanamo should not be considered extraterritorial for mm -hmm. the purposes of, of habeas. Uh, how would you or, or anyone in the panel view uh, the habeas petitions filed on behalf of the people in Bagram or Iraq, uh, non-U.S. citizens? Uh, is there an extraterritorial problem there, or do you think that those are legitimately should be legitimately considered right. by non-U.S. citizens. Now you're going to see my true dovish sentiments on all of these issues. I mean, the first thing it says that the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended. There's no territorial limitation with respect to its scope. So I think it is a perfectly natural reading to say wherever the United States exerts power, so far can habeas corpus run. Also, when you start to look at the due process clause, it wow. makes... Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm a wow guy. Um, but let me just at least make the rest of the argument, and then we can figure out what goes on. The other thing about the due process clause, of course, it does not apply only to citizens. It applies to all persons. And it, too, contains no territorial limitations. This doesn't mean that Dunis doesn't take into account territory or perhaps citizenship on some statement. But the thought that somehow or other you can erect categorical immunizations from review of individual detentions on either of those grounds seems to me to be a mistake. Second, if you're trying to talk about territory um, and you regard it as important, it seems to me that treating Guantanamo as a place where we have absolute and total control as something not in American hands by virtue of the fact that we would thereby offend Cuban sovereignty strikes me as so many levels of irony that I don't know where to begin. There is a school of thought that believes uh, that will not be happy until soldiers are required to Mirandize those they capture on the battlefield. <laughs> Uh, 
Oh, no, and no, I'm no, not no. one of them. <laughs> I mean, we could we could have a whole conference on the way Richard's been inconsistent, but I just want to throw, um, <laughs> which Richard would really love to be at and would be the bride, the groom, and the high priest at the wedding. But no, the the main point is that. Look, under Richard's approach to interpretation here, let's have a broad interpretation of commerce. Commerce doesn't have any limitation written in it, but Richard's actually in favor of a very narrow limitation on the commerce clause power because he looked at how people understood the word commerce in the 18th century. He, it's strange. He doesn't say, what did they think the habeas corpus writ meant in the 18th century? If you go back and look, there's no evidence of the use of habeas corpus by enemy prisoners in wartime to seek their release because they're unlawfully detained in an illegal war. And there haven't been, why weren't there millions of habeas corpus petitions filed by German and Italian and Japanese prisoners in World War II? It's extraordinary. I mean, I think you really, you can't rip the text out of its historical context and sort of give it this kind of unlimited reading. Look, John, no, there's a serious difference here. No one is arguing that you're going to give habeas corpus to ask the question of whether or not somebody's an enemy combatant when they're taken in uniform. That's the only thing we're arguing about. But in these cases, when you get people who are not in uniform, there is a genuine issue of fact as to whether they're there uh, by virtue of circumstance or being turned in by somebody or by being enemy combatants. And the question of whether or not they fall in the class of people who do not get protection is a question for which I think they're entitled to have some protection. And I think the national security interests are at their low ebb in circumstances where you let people rot in Guantanamo for five years when in fact they're innocent bystanders as opposed to dealing with people whom you capture on the battlefield who are firing guns at you. And if we can't draw that distinction, then we lose all sense of proportion about what is and is not liberty and what is or is not our own traditions. This is a country of limited government, and this is sounding awfully despotic to me. Next question. Yeah, I have, uh, I have just a very narrow question, I guess, for Professor Stone. Um, you referred before to uh, perhaps considering cases like Quirin as having uh, less vibrancy and particularly outside of their particular facts uh, because of the passage of time, even though perhaps on some of those areas uh, the Supreme Court in particular hasn't really spoken so much you need in, to get to the question in the intervening mm-hmm. years um, and I guess my question is is the same true of the Keith case uh, 34 years have passed there have been an awful lot of expansions of exceptions to the warrant requirement and does that uh, perhaps undermine the ability to apply Keith uh, outside of its specific uh, circumstances I mean to the extent that there have been relevant exceptions to the warrant requirement that undermine anything said in Keith I would agree that that was relevant to understanding its vitality today. I don't actually agree that that's an accurate statement of the law since Keith. But to the extent, if it were true, I think that it would be relevant in deciding how much presidential force to give Keith today. Last last question. I have a question for Mr. Pylon. I'd like your response to two matters which I think appear inconsistent with your position. First, Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution explicitly says, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. Why would the framers have given the authority to consent to engaging in war by a state if the power lay with the executive and not Congress? Secondly, Lewis Fisher, in his book on executive power, writes and documents that the the founding fathers, when they were in office, when it really counted, that is, that is Washington, Madison, Monroe, and Jefferson, all took the position that they did not have the authority to wage war 
without some form of congressional authorization. Do you agree with his reading of history? And aren't they in a better position than we are to tell us what they meant by the war powers? All right, that's the last second question. The answer is <laughs> second question. The answer is no. The first question, uh, obviously, they were dealing under the Articles of Confederation with the governors having the authority over the uh, militias and uh, a weak central government, and they wanted to make sure that. States were not off on their own uh, making foreign policy and waging wars that the uh, federal government would then have to uh, address. And so they, they, they simply centralized it in the president. But with respect – no, not in the Congress. Richard, are you – yeah, I know that, that, that that's – but that does not mean that every act of the executive – requires a declaration of war. I mean, let's think about what is entailed in that. There's something like 150 federal statutes that kick in under a declaration of war, allowing them to uh, – excuse me, let me you've, you asked your question. Let me th- – th- th- that kick in and that require the fed- – that authorize the federal government to do everything from requisition ships and, and, and property and so on and so forth. It's a, you really want a declaration of war with every time we uh, seize Noriega or whatever the case may be? Professor, you get – no, 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 thank you, thank you, thank you. The last sentence goes to I, Professor Yu. I, I just want to say I think Article One, Section 10 is extremely important and a great point, but the question to ask is why would Congress – the framers have written such a precise provision saying you have to get the consent of Congress and his exceptions for invasion and imminent danger and then not write the exact same provision with the presidency. I think it's a negative implication proves the exact opposite. Please join me in giving a warm – No, 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 no. Thank you very much. Roger's good. I did my I know I